0: Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan Chang, uh, and I'm your host for today for the uh, Longevity Biotech show. We have uh, an exciting show again. Uh, today, we have uh, the pleasure of having Daniel Oliver. Uh, he is the uh, CEO and uh, co-founder of Rejuvenate Bio, which is a George Church uh, lab spin-out that is trying to reverse aging in dogs. So um, yeah, really excited to you know speak with him and just get his, uh, his take on the longevity therapeutics approach, using different therapies to reverse aging in dogs. We'll also talk about his personal story, uh, how he got into entrepreneurship. He's got a, a really interesting backstory there. So uh, yeah, without further ado, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, no, excited to talk about Rejuvenate and happy to share more of my story as well.
0: Okay, awesome. Um, maybe we'll just start by asking, what is Rejuvenate Bio? And uh, what is the problem that you guys are trying to solve?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you did a pretty good job summing it up. I I mean, we're a spin out of George Church's lab. Uh, We are interested in um, therapies that cause full age reversal um, long-term. Currently, we are working with gene combination gene therapies that have demonstrated the ability to treat multiple age-related conditions in mice, and we've been able to move those therapies into dogs um, and verify a number of the results there. And so we are taking an approach of trying to utilize kind of age, you know, uh, aging based uh, therapeutics, focus them on specific age related conditions in both dogs and humans, and bring them to market there. And then hopefully utilize the fact that they can be used in multiple directions to expand their scope out to allow them to be accessible by as many people or pets as possible.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, that is really interesting. So, uh, so developing therapies in dogs. Now, this is interesting, right? Because um, you know there are a couple other you know uh, longevity biotech companies that are, are going down this path, you know, targeting uh, aging in dogs first. And
1: I know it's so kids. popular now.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's all the rage. <laughs> uh, so, so maybe you can tell us just a little bit well, why uh, why should we develop therapies in dogs first? Like, what's the uh, what's the benefit there?
1: Well, you know, I think you need a couple of things going for you. First off, you know, we are very passionate about animal health at Rejuvenate. Um, A little bit about the founding story of the company. Noah, my co-founder, Noah Davidson, was working in the church lab as a postdoc, was really interested in aging and age-related disease. About six months to his postdoc, got a a puppy, a little German shepherd puppy named Bear. Uh, And it cemented uh, both his interest in trying to help dogs but also kind of elucidated the point to him that there was this wealth of knowledge about how to affect aging but very little that had been translated to you know species that humans care about whether it be their pets or themselves and so it was something that was kind of a kernel of idea that we built upon and looked at you know does this actually make sense for business which i think was your actual question so why does it make sense to actually go into dogs? Well, first off, I mean, there's a couple of problems, and I know this audience is probably a little, um, probably more sophisticated when it comes to this type of research than some of the other people i talk talked to, but one of the inherent problems with doing any sort of anti-aging research is the cycle times with the experiments. And so picking a, a target organism um, to run your, your tests in that's both representative of what's going to happen in humans, um, but also has a short cycle time, is really difficult. Um, in our opinion, dogs actually fit that problem quite well. They live about 10x less than humans, suffer from very similar age related conditions, um, and actually share our environment. So, our, you know, are unfortunately similarly typically overweight, um, actually basically get the typically the same amount of exercise as their, as their pet parents. Um, and then end up with similar you know, age-related conditions. Uh, the second part here is you kind of need wins along the way um, to actually build a functioning business in the anti-aging space. What I mean by that is it would be awesome to just have kind of the fountain of youth cure, immediately go out and sell it, but there's quite a bit of stuff between here and there, not only from like a scientific standpoint of actually identifying what would, you know, what would be that therapy or cure, but also uh, the regulatory framework. So dogs provide a really nice place to go out in a relaxed regulatory environment. If You can solve a large problem there. It also represents a really attractive uh, financial proposition. And so you, know, you can see year over year revenues for animal health products that are in the hundreds of millions and represent you know, billions of dollars of enterprise value um, there. So you can build a robust financial business there as well Um, And then the third part is all of the data you generate while doing that is uh, directly translatable um, to taking whatever therapy you're using um, into human health. And so if I had to sum that up, it's, you know, they represent a model um, of aging uh, that you can you can work with based upon their 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 lifespan that's inherently shorter than humans. They are very representative of human aging, um, and in particular for gene therapy, also a really great model. And then also represent a, a financial, you know, or a market that's that's robust, where if you actually solve a problem there, you can you can have a, a you know a very successful, a financially successful business.
0: Okay, yeah, got it. And uh, yeah, that that makes total sense to me. Um, so one thing that you know a, a lot of people studying aging, or at least in mice, you know. They realize that you know certain age-related disease models just just don't work in mice, even though we use them all the time. So, like things like dementia and Alzheimer's, those don't don't actually naturally occur with age in mice, but uh, they do in in dogs. Like there is a, a canine dementia, I believe. So, so there is you know. Uh, so I, I I do believe you know that uh, dogs make a great model for aging, for at least in developing therapies for humans and then as you said before yeah I totally agree um you know it's it's nice to have a stepping stone in something that's easier to develop uh so you know dogs and there's there's a actual uh, business model there because you know <laughs> a, a lot of people have dogs you know they treat them like family and uh i think you know this past uh year with the with the pandemic lots of people <laughs> got a new you know furry friend uh, addition to their family so so that's really cool um
1: I yeah, think... it's actually kind of crazy the dog adoption rates are up. Like, I think it's like 100 percent. Like <laughs> you can't even all of the typical issues of dogs, um, you know, having to be euthanized to shelters and stuff is it basically evaporate. So it'll be interesting to see if that continues on. Um, if We'll reach like kind of a new steady state. But yes, like dog ownership is way up over the course of the past year.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So um, I guess my next question would be, uh, what are the challenges uh, that you face when you're developing therapies for dogs? Like, uh, I don't really know what the regulatory framework is like. Um, maybe you can give us a, a couple of details in uh, how, how that actually works.
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, we call the regulatory framework for what we do in animal health is human light. And so kind of the same underlying principles are there. We deal with the FDA. Uh, we deal with the subsection called the Center for Veterinary Medicine or the CVM. Um, To take a product um, to market with a claim of actually treating any sort of condition in dogs, you do need to go through a clinical trial process, not dissimilar to humans. Um, Similar in the sense that you need to prove the the efficacy of the treatment versus the safety of it. Dissimilar um, in as much as there's no intermediary um, approvals. So there's no kind of phase one, two, and three. You basically go and present your plan. Uh, The CVM says, yep, that looks good. You then go run your target animal safety and then your efficacy test and also get your your manufacturing qualified. Um, Submit your results to the FDA. They then approve you for sale and then you're kind of off and running. Um, So that's the typical path. Um, One of the more interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years, though, is the FDA has um, taken the viewpoint that if you are going into a life-threatening disease in animal health, and you are able to prove that your treatment is safe, and has a reasonable, what they call a reasonable expectation of effectiveness, you can actually go to market with your therapy um, without completing a full efficacy trial. And so this really accelerates the time to market. Um, the statutes called expanded approval, and then you actually are able to go to market under something called conditional approval. And That's something we'll be taking advantage of. So um, you know, a lot of the issues are very similar. You're dealing with similar types of people in FDA, but, you know, it's just a, it's a shorter time path to, to the market than it would be on the human side.
0: Okay, got it. So, so that shorter path, is that like, you know, maybe a couple of years compared to, you know, five, 10 years in, in humans? You know,
1: it's really dependent on your particular therapy. Um, you know, the safety trials are less than a year, um, typically. And so it's oftentimes contingent upon uh, uh, you know but those safety trials basically are based upon what your therapy is like or what your intervention is like, and then you also need to get your manufacturing up to g m p you know g m p grade manufacturing, which depending on what you're doing can take a you know a little amount of time or a lot of time so uh very you know very uh treatment dependent but uh, does allow you a path to market, you know, in something like you're saying, definitely less than five years for that accelerated time frame, And, uh, you know, and if you are able to get those things up and running very quickly, I mean, you could be looking at something like only a couple of years.
0: Okay, awesome, that's, that's yeah, that's a lot shorter. So, okay, so we've sort of set the stage for, okay, why it makes sense to try and develop longevity therapeutics in dogs. Um, Maybe we can go into a little bit about the uh, the science and the technology that uh, Rejuvenate uh, Bio is developing. So um, you mentioned that you, you're uh, developing a combination gene therapy. Uh, maybe you can just tell us a, a little bit uh, about the science behind that.
1: Yeah, happy to share some. And then people, I also encourage people to read um, the paper, kind of a seminal paper we had come out about this, um, had it published in PNAS. If you looked up my co-founder's last name, Davidson, um, Sohn, and then also cross-list with George Church. You'll be able to find it. It's also on our website. Um, <clears throat> but we are utilizing for our first therapy a combination gene therapy. So it's an adeno-associated va- virus-based gene therapy. So it's um, injected, uh, administers a single intravenous injection. Um, it then basically goes in, drops off its DNA payload, typically in liver cells, Um, These are little rings of DNA that express like the proteins we're interested in. And then in our case, those proteins are secreted proteins so they can go around through the bloodstream and have effects systemically. Um, The particular genes we're utilizing, um, one is FGF21. It's a more metabolically associated um, protein known as the starvation hormone. And so when we've utilized and others have utilized it, they've seen um, upregulation of FGF21, um, has uh, driven, uh, you know, the in this case mice back to their kind of normal body weight, even while eating a high-fat diet. Um, also seems to promote um, angiogenesis, our angiogenesis, and boost the immune system. Uh, the other gene we're utilizing is uh, we actually are down-regulating uh, kind of a damage or fibrotically associated gene called TGF-beta1. TGF-beta-1 is a circulating damage signal. And so we, um, over, we basically express a receptor uh, that goes around and binds circulating TGF-beta-1 and lowers the inflammatory environment in the body. And so uh, lowering TGF-beta-1 has been shown to um, <clears throat> basically lower inflammation, also stop the spread of certain types of cancer. And the interesting thing about both of these genes is when these mutations were put into mice transgenically, meaning the mice had it from birth. Um, I, you saw life expansion, or life extension benefits in FGF21 mice of 30% and of TGF-beta mice, I think of 12%. And so they have this pedigree of coming from these like longevity um, transgenic mouse experiments. So we are very confident that generally they are beneficial. These mutations are generally beneficial and so, by you know, throwing them into a gene therapy and then injecting them, um, we have quite a bit of data about what they do, um, and then can utilize their their abilities to extend you know lifespan, um, but focus them more specifically on age-related conditions. So happy to go deeper into the science there, but um, that is what our first therapy is made up of.
0: Okay, got it. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting because yeah, those two proteins, you know, there, there's been quite a bit of work. Uh, uh, those, those genes specifically, there's been a lot of work on that. Um, and, and like, it, it, it looks like it's sort of like, a, almost as if it was a like calorie restriction mimetic, I, I think the FGF 21. So, so that's really interesting. Um, yeah.
1: So, I mean, like all of those things kind of interrelate, right? Like when we were looking at all of this, you know, we basically broke down the world into I think five or six different kind of aging pathways, you know, one of which was metabolism, and then basically tried to pick genes within those categories um, that made sense um, as far as being packaged in the gene therapies and then utilize combinations of those to try to take advantage of some of the literature out there suggesting that there may be synergistic aging effects from attacking um, kind of orthogonal aging pathways. Um, And so a lot of the underlying thinking of how that was developed was kind of associated with exactly what you're bringing up, is identifying you know kind of disparate aging pathways trying to package them together and then see what what, what could
0: happen yeah awesome um yeah so uh, i mean we, we could talk all day about the science there and that but uh i do want to get into your personal backstory as well but uh before we ask that question um maybe uh you can tell us uh what's sort of like in the near and long-term future for rejuvenate bio
1: yeah so you know we just raised a series a financing in april Um, we, our goals coming out of that is to really push our treatments into the market for animal health. And I think we've talked a little bit about what the path would look like there, um, as well as get them ready to go into the clinic for human health. And so I think over the course of the next couple of years, um, you will increasingly see more and more information about us. Um, and then hopefully we'll be able to see a number of our products on the market initially in animal health and then in the clinic in human health. Um, long term, you know, we are very interested in full age reversal. So continue to, and I can't talk about everything we're doing internally there, but um, we are very interested in ways of kind of expanding upon our platforms we've created, utilizing gene therapy as kind of a, a transfer mechanism to bring uh, more and more novel therapies to bear that actually start, you know, pushing the limits of full age
0: Okay, that is super exciting and uh hopefully in the future you can share some more details and we'll definitely be you know watching out for for you know news when you guys get into the clinic for for uh for dogs and also uh humans. Uh I, I think you guys have a pilot study is is that true for uh, I think it was mitral valve um defect or something for uh Yeah,
1: exactly. So we, you know, just like I talked about, we are taking um, what we hope to be a general anti-aging therapy and are targeting it based upon some pretty solid um, data, both in mice that we generated as well as, you know, uh, you know, a wide literature um, review uh, to target the leading type of heart failure in dogs called mitral valve disease. Um, mitral valve disease is caused by a malfunctioning mitral valve, which is um, like a check valve. So it stops backwards flow between two chambers of the heart. And when it's not working well, you get a jet of flow back through that valve that ends up damaging the back wall of the left atrium of the heart. Unfortunately, this problem um, drives about 7% of dogs into congestive heart failure, and um, most of those end up passing away from from this. And so we have an ongoing study at Tufts Veterinary School um, where we're enrolling people's pets in a certain stage of that um, heart failure. I'm injecting them with the gene therapy and then following them for approximately two years. And so the study's not done, so I can't share like full results, but I will say uh, the the preliminary results we're seeing back from them um, are really exciting, um, really, really uh, encouraging safety profiles and some in some really intriguing um, efficacy data coming out of that trial.
0: Okay, got it. yeah, that's that's super exciting so um yeah. So we, we've sort of covered the basics of the, the science and the technology that you guys are developing at Rejuvenate Bio, and it's yeah really exciting. But um, I, I guess we can switch gears now, maybe just uh, rewind to the past and maybe start, you know ask a couple of questions about your journey in, in entrepreneurship and like the early days of the company. So um, yeah, I'm just interested, like uh, how, how did you get involved in biotech entrepreneurship and, and longevity? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I actually met my co-founder, uh, Noah Davidson. We were both undergrads at Caltech together. And I will freely admit I was not very interested in biology while I was there. Um, I'm, a, I guess, a reformed mechanical engineer. Um, actually got a mechanical engineering and business degree at Caltech. Ended up working in aerospace as an aerospace engineer for a number of years. Um, and during that time, also uh, launched a nonprofit company around creating Uh, a better wheelchair um, for developing countries. And what I started understanding about what I was interested in was um, really this kind of translational aspect of taking science from the lab or from, you know, an idea into uh, a form that actually made a difference in people's lives. And, you know, kind of my first shot, at that was a nonprofit. Um, I subsequently have focused mostly on for-profit businesses, but I'm very interested in places where you can actually get the science out to make tangible differences in people's lives. And so I ended up going back to school. I got my MBA from Harvard business school with an eye of being able to kind of start these science-based businesses. Um, Won a fellowship coming out of the MBA program that paid me for a year. Um, It's called the Pavotnik fellowship to try to commercialize technology out of uh, any of the labs around Harvard university Uh, ended up identifying a, a novel three printing technology um, help that get off the ground, um, help that raise uh, you know double-digit millions of dollars and helped them get the first product out the door. And at that time, I was kind of talking to Noah, who I'd mentioned had joined George Church's lab as a postdoc. He ended up getting his PhD in synthetic biology at MIT before that. And then, um, interestingly enough, the fellowship I'd had that helped launch voxel was actually, frankly, more biotech-focused um, than what voxel the 3D printing company, had become. And so I had a lot of context and a lot of, you know, experience looking into biotech ideas enough that which I could kind of help, you know, at least in a, uh, you know, in informal capacity start out and then started to continue to learn more and more. So I will, I will freely admit, I am not a PhD level in biology on these topics, but, you know, I do have a technical degree and I do think one thing Caltech lends you is uh <laughs> I'm not scared to try to go learn new science stuff because uh, Caltech was effectively four years of having no idea what was going on and trying to learn as much as possible at all times. So not something that intimidates me going forward. And also it just proves the point with these kind of early stage ventures, in my opinion, that you need people with multiple different types of skill sets. And those people need to be willing to learn how to do uh, new and different tasks and then also need to be willing to help teach and bring the others along and great on the gene therapy aspects. I've been able to become more and more of an expert there. Um, but you know, also I primarily take care of a number of the strategic and business aspects. of the company.
0: Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, so Back in the sort of like early days of the company, uh, what was that like? Because I'm always uh, interested to see how, you know, companies sort of got off the ground in the first place, you know, how they got uh, their original funding and stuff like that. Um, and also like, w- what were sort of the biggest challenges you faced in the early days of the company?
1: Well, I mean, it, it's funny with like us because we were such good friends, like uh, we were both in Boston at the time. So we would have, you know, we would hang out and, not an infrequent topic of conversation would be a Noah Noah business idea, and not necessarily surrounding his research. And then we'd kind of interrogate it and, and think of why it was an awful idea or the best idea, and blah, blah blah. And Often would go nowhere, right? Um, and then Noah started telling me about the research he was doing in George Church's lab, and frankly, at first I was I was very skeptical. Uh, it sounded uh, very very far fetched and uh, quote unquote crazy to me. Um, But then he also started showing me data from the stuff he was generating. And I got more and more intrigued. And uh, we started kind of putting together with these early stage ventures. What I've learned is um, the pitch deck is not the perfect tool, but it's an interesting tool for kind of disciplining your thought on what's it going to take um, to get one of these things off the ground. And so I don't think you need to make it pretty or anything like that, but I often think it makes sense to kind of build out what are the typical slides in a pitch deck and try to answer those questions um, early on. And that's what we did um, basically informally together, um, started talking to my contacts and other people knowing knew as well, and basically started answering the questions, kind of not to some of the ones you've asked today, like you know, how would you even get this to market in animal health? Why would it make sense to go into animal health, not directly to humans? What would it get to you if you went to animal health on your way to humans, blah, blah, blah. Um, and started kind of piecing all those things together and, um, you know, it looked like there was a robust business there and then had an opportunity to apply for funding at an institute inside of Harvard called the Peace Institute. And I ended up quitting my, uh, my job at Box Lake, um and applying for that funding, uh, lucky enough to win it. So I was brought in as an entrepreneur in residence um, to help, you know, work on things to spin the company out. And then we got funding for kind of commercially minded experiments. Um, to help spin the company out in earnest from the university there. So that's the genesis story. I mean, you asked kind of what were the most difficult things early on. I mean, a lot of it is just that like, science takes a long time. And when you're starting from these kernels of ideas, there's like so many different aspects. And you have limited resources and limited people working on it. So oftentimes, it just takes quite a bit of time to put that all together. I feel like we were very fortunate to be incubated in a university setting for, you know, I think we were there for about 18 months. Um, really gave us kind of a nice place to be, access to huge amount of resources and also, you know, top level professors, um, and gave us time to really put things together before we raised the seed ground and spun out in earnest. But, you know, I, at the end of the day, with these kind of science based businesses, one of the things I, I think is really true is like your job as a business person or a CEO is trying to remove as many barriers to the science making progress as possible. Because at the end of the day, that's what moves the needle. And so anything I could do to um, take something off Noah's plate to allow him to push the science forward or find ways of expediting um, any of those experiments or things like that, like, I think that's the most meaningful things because that's the thing that takes the longest.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I like the way that you frame that. And um, maybe we can dig a little deeper into this because, um, you know, one of the things that uh, is extremely lacking in the longevity you know, biotech space is that there's just not enough founders, right? And I think uh, a lot of people sort of self-select themselves out of the, the founder pool because they feel like, oh, you know, I don't have a you know, traditional you know, biology degree or that sort of training, so I can't possibly make a difference in this space. And uh, I think, you know, with the stuff that we're doing at on OnDeck you know, with the longevity biotech Fellowship program. We're just trying to find as many people who have the you know, amb- ambition and the talent and the passion for doing something about aging through, you know, uh, the startup ecosystem. Um, we're just trying to find these people and bring them together. But um, I-, I wonder, do you have any words of advice for, um, you know, entrepreneurs that want to get involved in biotech or, or longevity biotech, but uh, they don't have a traditional uh, bio- biology background? Um, so, like, what are the key things that you think they need to do to be effective in uh, building a biotech company?
1: Yeah, I mean, I really agree with you that it's difficult. Like, I do think one of the bottlenecks for more and more of these companies getting formed is a lack of founding teams um, and the correct founding team. So, I'm right there with you, and I, I love the stuff you guys are doing there on with on deck. Um, I, a couple of things in words of encouragement I give for people that aren't, you know. Uh, maybe have a biology BS or maybe not even that like me um, and certainly don't have a biology PhD is um, I think a really key element of science-based businesses is they often come from the perspective of having uh, an answer, but they don't know what the question is. And what do I mean by that? They often have an innovation, but they don't know where to apply it in industry. And so typically to figure out where that innovation will work to solve a real problem, it doesn't take a huge amount of scientific understanding. It takes someone willing to kind of go do the grunt work, the hustle of talking to as many people as possible, um, a little imagination on what you could possibly do in these different industries. And then, you know, kind of the hard work of piecing that all together. And oftentimes, you know, there are scientists that are interested in doing that, but oftentimes the scientists and maybe the engineers that or came up with the innovation are are more interested in continuing to push forward on increasing its ability to do X, Y, or Z versus really understanding what the application would be. And so bringing that type of hustle and um, expertise is hugely helpful. I also think at the end of the day, these ventures often take off based upon the funding put towards them. And that funding is primarily based upon the story you create, the team you surround yourself with, and you know, like I said before, the application you pick, um, which is a large part of the story you end up telling. And so bringing those elements together um, is hugely important. And so to me, like people from lots of different backgrounds have a lot to bring to, you know, to biotech ventures or longevity ventures. Um, but I think the key is don't be intimidated by the science, but also you know, be humble enough to know that you're going to have to ask questions that'll probably seem dumb in the room people but find co-founders that are willing to help you out there like recognize um, what you're bringing to the table and then utilize resources where you can to find these technologies early on to help and then also uh, for me with this entrepreneurship stuff like you know everybody kind of knows like the mythic founders that like their first venture became you know facebook or blah, blah blah or whatever but the vast majority of these things you know get reps like try things do consulting projects for free for you know PhD students that are looking for an application, like do these types of things, connect with people. Um, one of the platforms I really love is uh, AVX, um, which basically is aggregated a bunch of the, of the academic work that's being done in the top uh, research universities across the US. And these are all basically PhDs and postdocs that are interested in spinning companies out of these universities. And so you can basically become part of the community, see these, try to help the people on the platform out, maybe meet someone who has an interesting technology um, and then work to spin a business out. But, you know, Mm. take the time, take reps. It's fine to have failures. I certainly had plenty of things that didn't work um, in in my experience. So just go and try to do stuff and try to go be as helpful as possible in different places.
0: Okay, yeah, awesome. Those are good words of advice. And uh, yeah, I just want to reiterate there that, you know, uh, biotech founders—they uh, can come from all sorts of different uh, backgrounds. Uh, you know, even in, within our own space, right? Uh, you know, Ben Kamens at uh, Spring Discovery, right? He was a software engineer at uh, Khan Academy for a while, and uh, you, you have people like you know Matt Scholes at Oishin Biotechnologies. You know, he, he his background was in computer science. So yeah, and of course yourself, uh, your background was a uh, formal background was in um, uh, mechanical engineering, but. Uh, it's just great to see you know that you don't have to be boxed in by uh, I guess your your formal training you can uh, you can learn things and you can you know have a big impact in, in places that you are passionate about. So I love to see that your, your stories uh, extremely inspirational in that respect. So um, so okay so moving right along. Um, maybe uh, uh, next question maybe is about uh, mentorship so. Um, uh, you know when when I first heard you speak uh in uh, Nabia's uh, clubhouse room uh you you had some interesting ideas about mentorship and you know uh, with the program that we have at on deck you know we really you know want to provide you know the best sort of um you know ecosystem or you know environment to help uh, facilitate mentorship so what are your thoughts on this like how, how do you find a good mentor in you know biotech entrepreneurship
1: Yeah you know I <laughs> I definitely have a lot of Caltech in me, so I'm not necessarily the most extroverted person. So um, idea of like going to a conference and just talking to everybody in like the ballroom or something is like just fairly intimidating. me. So what, I, what I've always liked doing is trying to kind of short circuit that process, basically figure out really targeted questions of challenges I'm having identify like the correct people and then simply just like reach out to them and see if you can talk to them. Um, my experience has been like over LinkedIn, you probably get like 50 or 60% hit rates with even like really, you know, quote unquote important people. And then you just start building things out from there. Um, the the thing I've noticed with kind of having people mentor you or or be good advisors and eventually become, you know, maybe scientific advisory board members or board members, things like that is, um if you show a demonstrated ability to um listen to what they're saying take their advice synthesize it in what you're doing and come back and show them results um people are very interested in working with you um frankly i met nabiha when she was nabiha from salino um, was she was uh still at harvard and the thing that immediately impressed was me with her the most was like she asked a million questions which was great and then the next time I talked to her like I could tell like things had happened based upon the conversations we've had and the conversations she'd been having with other people and so it wasn't like kind of an infinite I feel like you talk to some people it's like an infinite loop of they get hung up on one problem and they never get past it they never just pick a direction and go Um, so that's what I would suggest I mean I feel like I kind of have mentors that are people who have done it, and then also a set of people that are like kind of in the trenches right now doing it and I feel like both are super important, so like more of a peer group or whatever and uh build those relationships, utilize people that you like hanging out with or talking to, and then also continue to be helpful and then also try to bring something to the table whenever you can to someone else and that doesn't mean like the same person you're getting mentorship from, but you know um anybody on this on this clubhouse is welcome to ping me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to try to help in any way I can. I certainly had lots and lots of people help me um, and continue to help me with the things I'm watching. So um, if I could be a service, please let me know. I'm personally passionate about getting many more of these technologies out into the market. So I'm there, but I've always found, at least for my personality, um, targeting mentors at times where I had really concrete questions to ask and could really build relationships like that um, was the most effective way.
0: Okay, got it. Yeah, good words of advice there. Um, okay, so we're almost uh, at the sort of like halfway point where we'll let, start letting people come up onto the stage. But um, before uh, we get there, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to try something new for, the, today's, uh, for today's episode. Um, we're going to do a lightning round, basically some your, your quick thoughts on certain <laughs> subjects on, on, you know, biotech entrepreneurship, we'll try and keep it short. Uh, if, if, you know, something piques someone's interest in the audience, they can follow up either in the QA now or sure. you know, they can follow up later, but, uh, okay. So let's, let's try this. Okay. Number one, what's, what's your thought on like uh de-risking an idea for like a startup?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we kind of went to like, what team you bring to the table, the non-traditional background, I think this is a really key point. Um, every business you're building has key questions that you need to answer. Um, one thing is going exploring what people think those key questions are and then your your real goal as a, a CEO is figuring out the the quickest, cheapest way of answering those questions as quickly as possible and so mm-hmm. that typically doesn't mean build the entire business uh, before you know like the kind of the answers to a bunch of key questions, but that is really your job and that 's kind of where your financing strategy mm-hmm.
0: okay, got it. Okay, number two, uh, tech transfer offices.
1: <laughs> uh, it could have really deep conversations here. They have very disparate incentives to what you're doing. Um, so be aware of that. Uh, your, best, your best friends are people who have gone through it and comparables. And so if you are negotiating with tech transfer office, talk to one of your friends or someone you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody. About what it's like, and then have lots and lots of comparables, particularly with that tech transfer office, of what their deals look like.
0: Okay, cool. Um, okay, number three uh, IP strategy.
1: Yeah, you shouldn't have an IP strategy. You should have a protection um, strategy for your business, and that may involve certain pieces of IP. And so that's the way you need to view it. Um, having patents in and of itself aren't good, those patents have to lend ability to either protect what you're doing or protect an ability to continue what you are doing or increase the value of the company in, in, uh, in an acquisition. So um, should be viewed in the context of the business, not necessarily, um, I don't like scientific patents often are kind of crazy and are based upon like the crazy ideas the scientists have. They need to be put in the context of whatever business you're
0: doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Okay, number four, uh, fundraising.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, similar tech transfer offices, something that's necessary, not always pleasant. Um, there are kind of tried and true methods for different rounds of financing to make yourself more successful. Um, lots of good resources out there. i happy to connect on seed financing and things like that. Um, but utilize best practices, run a tight process with multiple um, relevant VCs or types of investors you're looking at and try to drive the process to a close. Your goal is to try to get multiple offers, basically. Um, it'd be like selling your car, but only approaching one person. You know, and you wanna put it in as many places as possible, um, get as many offers as possible, and then play those people off each other, get the best deal. Um, the only other thing I'll say is like, I think there's kind of a pyramid of investors. Um, there's the people that are actually smart and have a lot of money, they're on top. The next would be people that um, don't you know, are kind of passive investors that have a decent chunk of money. And then the, the lowest rung, um, which arguably there's the most of, are people that think, think they know what they're talking about with your business and may have a lot of money or no money, but will be in your way and uh, cause you problems. So try to stay in the top two categories. Obviously, the top category is the best, but... Um, that would be the other layer you're looking at here versus just, just particular deal terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, choose your investors wisely. <laughs> okay, uh, number five, uh, indication selection. So, this is something that's really, uh, really, you know, a big problem in longevity therapeutics um, because, you know, you can't choose uh, an aging trial per, per se. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on indication selection?
1: Well, so in longevity in general, I think you have to play within the confines of the regulatory framework that's set up. And so we have very different indication selections in human health and animal health because the regulatory framework is quite, quite different. So for example, in animal health, going after a large life threatening disease actually accelerates the time to, versus going after something like heart failure in human health would not make any sense. It would be a really difficult regulatory push. So there we are interested in identifying um, indications that may be rare or orphan diseases that allow us to enter the clinic quickly, but also will generate data um, in, in that we think we have a high probability of treating, but also that will generate data that allows us to go into larger education. So I think you need to come up with uh, ways of taking advantage or working inside the existing frameworks of whatever regulatory process you're dealing. Now, in saying that, like, lots of longevity companies aren't necessarily dealing with the FDA. I mean, there's their there's nutraceuticals and things out there. These are all, you know, these are all decisions people make and based upon that regulatory framework, you need to pick like how, what indications set or what claims you're going to make or if any at all.
0: Okay, cool. Um, Okay, number six, lab space.
1: (laughs) I really am a proponent of utilizing like the co-working spaces early on. Um, They may look kind of expensive from the outside, but the thing people tend to miss is that Uh, You're basically taking like a million or a million and a half dollar um, capital equipment cost out of your first fundraise uh, because you get to use all the shared equipment at the lab space. Um, Once you grow past kind of 10-ish people, um, probably time to get your own lab space and move out. Um, But those co-working spaces early on are really, really ideal and they're kind of sprouting out all over the place where they were kind of primarily in Boston and San Francisco. We were, we just moved out of co-working space in San Diego, and I know the co-working space BioLabs that we work at, I think has outlets in um, North Carolina, I think Texas, I know LA, I know San Francisco, I know Boston, so they're, they're becoming pretty ubiquitous, I would take advantage of
0: it. Okay, yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Um, okay, uh, number seven, I, I don't know if you guys use this, but like uh, CROs, like uh, contract research organizations, uh, I don't know yeah. if you have any tips on that
1: um they don't care about what you're doing as much as you do uh they will make any mistake possible and so you need to find quality ones and you need to figure out how to deal with them in a way that's time effective but also get your experiments done correctly um do not assume that they will be doing it right i think this is one of the biggest learnings of people coming out of academia with dealing with kind of third party contractors um on trying to get this stuff done, so it is, uh, is it is really the only way of running animal experiments, in my opinion, for like early stage biotech. And so you will be dealing with CROs, but know that they are difficult to deal with, and you should stay on top of them. Probably visit the facility if possible, communicate that you're on top of things, and check in with them constantly. That's the that's the way to handle it.
0: Okay, great. And uh, number eight, hiring.
1: Yeah. Hiring is um, one of those things that everybody says is difficult and I feel like no one believes. And then when you actually go through it, it is very difficult. Um, It's difficult to know if people are really going to be great. It is a huge deal if you get great people and it takes quite a bit of time to screen people, interview them, negotiate with them, do that like multiple times for the same position. Maybe that person falls through. And so try to utilize as many of the resources as possible post your Post your jobs anywhere you can. Um, try to network through people for particular jobs. And then try to get your jobs in front of the right types of people for, like, very specific roles. So, for instance, for us, um, we had a virus manufacturing role to fill. Um, there's only so many people who have really done that. And so, like, a targeted LinkedIn search and, uh, like, in-mails is more effective than posting it on, uh, uh, Zillow's not the right, no, like, on Indeed or something like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. But you utilize any, it's kind of like scrapping claw, particularly early on. This is one, you know, I think there's a big debate with like startups whether you should be stealth or where you should be public. Um, I think one of the bigger benefits of being more public and more well-known is recruiting. And so keep that in mind when you're picking kind of your PR strategy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that, that's great advice. Definitely amazing. Um, Okay, so uh, last one for the lightning round. Do you have any other advice that you think is important for uh, founders in biotech or or longevity?
1: Um, Yeah, just know that particularly early on, um, you could literally have a day where you think uh, there's absolutely zero chance what you're doing will be a successful business. And then in two hours, you think there's absolutely no chance it could be. And uh, that roller coaster of emotions and expectations is pretty typical. And just know that almost everything you encounter early on there's typically an answer for or maybe isn't as good as it looks and so uh continue to ride the wave for a while and then things become more established and you kind of get more momentum but don't don't let that kind of roller coaster discourage you or or kind of you know um end your journey prematurely um try to ride the wave as long as possible and uh you know it is, it is not an unstressful job, but I think it's a really exciting and fun one. And so take advantage of that. You don't need to be working 24 seven. You just need to be working effectively. And so take some time for yourself um, and just continue to make progress.
0: Great, yeah, that's, that's probably advice that I should be taking, but uh, <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see if that actually pans out. <laughs> okay, um, okay, so, uh, I guess we're we're um, at the time where anybody in the audience, if you're interested in coming up to ask a question, uh, you can raise your hand and I'll start letting people up. but uh, while we're waiting for people to come up to the stage, um, I guess I'll la- ask my last question. Um, how can we help you? Uh, is there anything that um, you know we can do anybody in the audience or someone listening uh, later at home on you know podcasts uh, to help you in your mission at Rejuvenate Bio? Um, For instance, are you guys hiring, are you looking for partnerships, Uh, looking for investors, anything like that?
1: Really great question. Um, You know, I'm really interested in connecting with more and more people, so please feel free to reach out, love to talk to people that are excited about this area. Um, So happy to do that. Also, we will be taking a more public presence coming out here, whereas we have been, I won't say we were in stealth because we had some pretty big articles come about us saying what we're doing, um, but we will try to kind of continue to be in the news. So please uh, please feel free to continue to read about us, um, maybe share articles about us, um, follow our social media pages. Um, in particular, I think our like my LinkedIn is probably the best um, for like the key announcements that come out and things like that. Um, it's helpful. And then yes, if you do think of ideas or resources, that would be great for us. Certainly we are very interested in partnering across both animal health and human health. Please feel free to forward those my way. Um, my email is Dan at RejuvenateBio, so feel free to email me there or ping me on, on LinkedIn. But, uh, you know, otherwise, I'm happy to be part of the community and also happy to try to help more people um, work on aspects of, of the industry as well.
0: Okay, awesome. So uh, you guys heard that here from, from Dan. Uh, if you guys are interested to uh, reach out to him, definitely uh, look him up on uh, LinkedIn or his, his email. Um, Okay, cool. So, uh, this was great, awesome conversation, learned a lot. Uh, The lightning round was uh, a success, (laughs) I I would say, the first time, but... uh, I hope I was lightning enough. Oh, oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah, (laughs) covered a lot of ground and just a lot of great tactical sort of uh, pieces of advice. So, that's really amazing. Um, Okay, so we have some people coming up on stage, Uh, I'll let them up now. Okay, Uh, Dan Stepanov. Okay, Dan. Uh, welcome to hey. the stage. Um, what's your question?
2: Uh, yeah, sorry. So apologies for any background noise. I'm also driving. Um, but my question is, um, so I, I my, my approach here is like my background is chemical engineering and then software engineering and uh, recently went through YC in a completely area outside of biotech. My question is basically... As far as an approach uh, of getting into longevity, uh, my, it, it, I'm wondering if it's a, it's a solid approach and, and it's basically to get the chops of running a startup um, in a respected way, right, institutionally funded and uh, as well as like securing some of like my own capital to sort of intend to put up my own money uh, uh, and have skin in the game and, and then, you know, sort of parlay that into um, as I build out a community for myself or network for myself, uh, into then starting the next venture being as like a biotech longevity one. Um, and I, am just curious as far as like, is, is that how you, is that a valid approach? Am I sort of like coming up with an excuse here to not take that first step? Um, uh, especially given your background, not being, you know, uh, scientific in the in the nature of like bio. Um I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts
1: there. So I do think there's a lot of things that are extendable from one startup to another. Um I I, I do I do struggle with, you know, some of I, I have no idea what your YC business is, but I'm guessing it's more tech focused. There is some overlap between like the investor set and the correct people there, but it's not it's not close to a hundred percent overlap. And so I I would suggest that you continue to build your skills and, you know, launching a startup. I think that's all key stuff and also will play when you go and try to launch like a biotech startup. But I would also try to get my feet wet with like working with different teams that are are launching things in different biotech areas um, to get more experience there. And then also, I mean, like probably the most key thing, the two key things with starting with these longevity biotech stars is like, you know, the idea and the people you start with. And so, The more you're connected with the community and are finding people you like and are working on cool things and get involved in those cool projects i think the better chance you have and you can be totally doing something else while you did that i mean basically all the startups i've been involved with i was working on something else for quite a bit of time while it was initially incubating and so probably not an either or um, but i don't think your approach is totally flawed but i would just I would encourage you to continue. And it seems like you're doing that by being on like this type of clubhouse, but continue to try to connect with people in that area and then try to get involved in more tangible ways as well with teams that are working there and maybe launching companies if that makes sense.
2: Right, sure. So there are, I appreciate that. Um, I'm just, uh, there are a bunch of biotech companies in YC and uh, I guess you're saying sort of like reach out to those folks, try to engage in more, like, tangible ways, right?
1: Those folks, I think, like, that AVX platform I mentioned might be a really interesting thing for you to do because it's yeah. kind of low risk. You know, the YC folks probably have a pretty decent – you know, they may be totally wrong, um, but they might they probably have a pretty decent idea of where they want to go with their stuff if they got into YC, you know? Um, so there may be stuff you can do with them. It certainly would be good folks to know, but, you know, some of the early work you could do to kind of try to formulate strategies for biotechs, you might have a better chance working with someone who's still in the lab, you know, where it's kind of a lower risk for them. And it just gives you reps or something. Yeah, does, sure. that, does that make sense to yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it does, and I and I wasn't sure exactly originally because you know uh, I didn't know about your co-founder, and and that's clearly I imagine like very helpful in in that regard and, and working with people. Yeah, for, so I mean that's
1: yeah. that's not necessarily replicable, right? So it, I unfortunately can't utilize the advice of like go to Caltech and have a bunch of smart friends right. Right <laughs> and do pretty crazy stuff, you know. Um, so I to try to short circuit that, I do think. Um, like that AVX platform is a really great thing. If, you know, I don't know what university you're from, but obviously you were part of kind of the more technical aspects. So you can kind of try to go back and talk to the tech transfer office there um, and things like that. They're often really interested in working with people that can actually help kind of mentor students doing entrepreneurship stuff. So, and then the other thing I will say is like, it's easy enough for me to like create a narrative around my story of how I got here that semi makes sense. Um, But in reality, these things are far more um, kind of random and organic. And so the more interesting, cool people and interesting things you're working on, I think the better shot you have of, of working on something like that long-term. And It's not necessarily something you can like 100% plan out, but you can up the probability I guess.
2: Totally fair. And and last bit is just to clarify on a term, uh, tech transfer. I'm actually not
1: familiar with that.
2: Could you Could you clarify? Oh, sorry. So...
1: Yeah, so like if you're a grad student or a professor and you uh, file a patent while you're at the university, the university actually owns the patent. And so the tech transfer office is the kind of bureaucratic entity inside of the university that um, actually negotiates and licenses the technology out to companies or individuals um, to actually go commercialize. And so they often have an interesting view of kind of the innovations that are happening at that university. Right. uh, These ones that were patented. That okay. that
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that clarification.
0: Okay, great. Uh, does that uh I guess that's all your questions, Dan, or do you have anything else?
2: That's it for now. Yeah. Okay.
0: Great. Great. Um I guess we're going to invite uh Avi Roy up to the stage. He's a friend. Nice to see you, Avi.
3: Nice to see you too, Nathan. Thanks for um inviting uh up to the stage. Uh Daniel, uh excellent presentation. Um, Thank you for the talk and um, the rapid-fire questions. Uh, The answers to those were, I mean, brilliant. Um, I just have a quick question. I joined about 10 minutes late, so I don't know if you actually covered this at the beginning of your talk, but uh, um, in dogs, uh, you have this thing that you don't really see in humans um, as long as the um, healthcare is equitable, which is that you see almost a a 2.5x, sometimes, I mean, you know, at the maximum, and you can see up to 3x difference in maximal lifespan. So Irish wolfhounds or, or you know, Great Danes have a, have a median lifespan of like seven years, whereas we all know that smaller dogs, um, Chihuahuas or, or others, um, you know, go closer to 20 years. Um, that's at least, that's more than 2.5x two, two, two uh, increase in lifespan. Your paper that you talked about, you know, we're looking at um, more universal, uh, or at least mouse applicable genes like um fibroblast growth factors uh tgf beta which have been have have some reasons to uh in uh, to be beneficial in humans as well and i think um i'm forgetting the third gene uh clotho sorry Alpha um, clotho yeah, yeah clotho yeah 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 um but have you guys uh, looked at the comparative genomics of these dogs i mean we we see this in other species as well, where the size differences does make a make make a huge difference um, intra species. Um, so um, I was wondering, um, could we just like uh, put some Chihuahua genes in in uh, in you know <laughs> Irish Wolfhounds and our Great Danes? Uh, uh, yeah, especially what do you do uh, in in I mean, how do you actually apply these comparative genomics findings in adult dogs?
1: Yeah, really good question. So yeah, I I think there's a lot of evidence in both mice and dogs that kind of this uh, smaller phenotype, like dwarf mouse phenotype, or in dogs like the Chihuahua versus the Great Dane, uh, you're seeing maximal lifespans increases that I think are you know comparable to what you talked about. So um, the answer is you know it's still a little bit unclear whether you can utilize that intervention later in life and still see those benefits. Um, FGF 21 is actually kind of touching on some of the pathways associated with that. And so in essence, we are kind of doing a little bit about what you're talking about, although we didn't come to it necessarily in the way you're talking about it. Um, but I actually do think mice, and don't quote me on this, but mice that are uh, transgenically have FGF 21 increased do have a smaller phenotype um, through age um, as they age. So. You know, I do think gene therapy is a really interesting tool in doing that. Um, I do know people have explored some other genes that you could do that with. And I think kind of the more open question becomes, um, does making that change uh, later in life, uh, you know, are you seeing half the benefit are you seeing three quarters or are you seeing one quarter? And then how many different cells and what types of cells do you need to make that change in to see the benefit? So. I think one of the hidden things that's really unique about what we're doing that really makes what we're doing work is the fact that both of the proteins, or actually all three of the proteins that you mentioned are all secreted, and so they're, they're having systemic effects, whereas there are a number of uh, genes and proteins that work more intracellularly, so like inside the cell, um, where you would have to deliver the change to, um, you possibly, you would have to deliver the change to a huge amount of cells. Um, versus us where we can kind of target the liver basically make it uh, turn into a little protein factory and have those proteins go everywhere and so those kind of delivery challenges and this question of like where's the tipping point in organisms is still a very open question um and i think a really interesting one for really pushing the limits uh to the max long term
3: thank you daniel that uh Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty detailed answer. Can I just uh, add on to one of the things that both Daniel, you and Dan brought up, which is, um, uh, I mean, you guys are all coming in from different things and and Nathan as well to biology, whereas, you know, I I did, I I studied biology, and I still have PhD students who are doing biology. I have to say that, Nathan, Daniel, Dan, your backgrounds are far more amenable to like, it's much easier. um, This may be my bias speaking, but in the doctoral training centers in in Oxford and Cambridge, um, uh, the it's much easier to train engineers into biology rather than the other way around <laughs> to make biologists. Depending on how how much biology training they have had, as in like post PhD or whatever, to make them quantitatively sound or programmatically sound. Uh, so so uh, yeah, I mean, uh, people who are coming from engineering fields into biology, I mean, it's so much easier for you guys. <laughs>
1: well that's very good that, I, didn't, I didn't i i didn't do super well in my biology courses, so I'm not positive that, that is true but um I do think you know I do think there is something to be brought with like where two fields meet and you bring different ideas together and be able to kind of synthesize those ideas into a whole and I also will say when you're doing quote unquote you know or when you're doing work that's pushing the envelope of different places. Um, often there are not experts. And so the time you spend to learn about what you're working on and what you're doing, you know, puts you at the head of the pack. And so I I would tell people, don't be intimidated that you might be behind now. If you actually go and do something interesting, you will quickly become like one of the foremost experts of it, just because that's kind of the way the world works.
2: I actually do have a question about fundraising now uh on that on that sense, but I, I wanna give others the opportunity
0: to ask questions. Um I guess uh Dan do you have uh just a couple more minutes because I know we're over time but um
1: oh I, I can hang out.
0: Yeah. Oh okay great great okay sure sure uh Dan awesome. Stepanoff, go ahead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh the question is basically so having gone uh recently through fundraising um and having done so in the the past uh it it is a very tumultuous process. Uh, I'm curious, like being that emotional, like having that emotional story, like you said, um, yeah. during that, that process is, is so key. Um, how it, it pairs with the data, right? Like, and having the information behind, uh, what, what you're, what story you're selling and, and what is, what does the fundraising landscape look like then, uh, especially in the top tiers, um, for for that is is it relatively small still is it developing is it you know fully developed and and uh and and how do you match the the data with that in a in a situation where things just take you know like you said sciences take time right
1: so are you asking about longevity in general dan
2: i i think so yeah yeah i i yeah
1: so i mean i i don't have a real good answer there i will say um I mean, every story is unique and what you're really doing with VCs oftentimes is a weird um, push and pull of pattern recognition and standing out from the group. And so you want to kind of hit their pleasure sensors on whatever they care about. And I'm sure you saw this with YC. I mean, YC is the master of like formulating your deck to like hit the notes that that kind of investor cluster wants to do. And then they have you guys all do it together and create kind of frenzy around what you're doing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, those Mm -hmm. are all really good things. Um, there are certainly people are becoming increasingly interested in, I think most people say anti-aging now at like the top tiers versus longevity science. But like, for instance, Arch Venture Partners just raised, I don't know what, like a billion and a half dollars or something like that. One of the initiatives they're looking into is anti-aging. Um, I know from personal experience that almost all of like the tech bio VCs are at least interested and will return your calls with this type of stuff. And so I don't think you're gonna get too many doors shut, but like the other thing to know is there's not been like gigantic wins. Um, you know, Unity biotechnology was probably the biggest win thus far. And I do think Archback Unity, I kind of forget off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure it was Arch and Bedrock, but um got it they had a big miss they had a big miss in the clinic recently and so like that is so i don't know you're always playing these games where you're like trying to stand out from the pack but you're trying to like kind of pattern you know like fit the pattern that they like investing in and so i don't know you have to balance that like that's that's kind of what you have to bring to the table and there's no real way of doing that without like talking to the people and then kind of formulating a strategy and so I don't know. I think it is worth trying to connect with VCs early on and have kind of informal conversations and kind of get their take. Um, they're not always the most straightforward. And the the decision-making processes, as you get deeper into deeper into fundraising process, it sounds like you've gone through it. You will know are not. they're not fully rational. And so there's only so much you can do. Yeah. But the one thing I will say is a fundraising strategy I think is helpful is like try to think of the hooks of your business that could appeal to different people at different time points. And so like, you know, for us, it's like some people are really interested in dogs. Some people are really interested in anti-aging science. Some people love George church. Some people love Harvard. um, You know, some people love the idea of bringing together, like, you know, doing therapeutics a different way. And so try to think of all the different hooks you can have and then try to emphasize those hooks for the audience you're going after when you pitch. But you know, fundraising is a uh it's definitely more of an art than a science in my opinion and uh, no the times yeah. you do it i think the better you get at it and the more wins you have and things like that like you know also help your help your friends.
2: yeah no i i appreciate it thank you for the clarification it sounds like it's basically funding within uh anti-aging and stuff is pretty similar to funding elsewhere
1: yeah i don't think you're getting shut out of most places anymore because you're like anti-aging as long as you have a, a realistic
0: stretch.
1: Yeah. Sure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: OK, great. Thanks for your questions, Dan Stepanov. Um, OK, we have Laura on, on the stage. Uh, <laughs> Laura is a friend as well. Uh, um, maybe you can ask your question, Laura.
4: Hi, Nathan and uh, everybody else. Thank you for having me on stage. Uh, my question is related to where are you at with the general um, the, I guess the therapies, I have a miniature Dachshund dog, and I know that what you're tackling right now is something very specific with mitral valve disease, but what is the roadmap going to look like, and when will uh, it go to consumer, actually?
1: Great question. So we do have a pilot trial um, looking into the leading type of heart failure called mitral valve disease, as I talked about, ongoing at Tufts Veterinary School, that people that we are still enrolling dogs in Um, So that is still ongoing. And we just raised money that should take us to market in animal health. So, you know, I think we're projecting 2023 to be in market um, for our first product, um, which would be a treatment for mitral valve disease in dogs. So, um, you know, I not tomorrow, but, you know, um, we are we are getting there.
4: Cool. So, what will it look like for a dog? I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in the consumer experience when it comes to this longevity therapies and all these things that are going to happen, hopefully sooner rather than later. But, what will it look like for a dog taking a treatment? Will it be, will it have to go through the veter- uh go through their vet, or is something that you will deal with directly with the owner of the dog?
1: Yeah. So initially, it will be. Um, sold as a treatment for mitral valve disease. Uh, it will be prescribed and administered by a vet. Um, it's a gene therapy. So it's, you know, a set of viral particles in solution that's uh, given as an intravenous injection. And so while it's not something that's too difficult for a vet to do, it's something basically any veterinarian could do. It's not something that we could, um, you know, just kind of send to people and have them do themselves. And so it would be sold through veterinarian offices. And initially, while we believe the therapy, um, you know, has the promise of going into other directions, would be marketed at, and the claims would all be around the treatment of disease.
4: Thank you. And I just want to make a quick comment about the anti-aging, because I know we've had these conversations in the rooms with Nathan and Abby and other people. there is a huge shift in people not liking the term. So maybe investors do like it and the scientists do, but if you ask most people over 50, the general public right now, or even 40, they feel that that negates their process. So I, longevity, health span, I think they're, I mean, I, I, we can do a lot on messaging to people in terms of getting them interested. and. I feel that anti-aging sometimes puts people off nowadays. That's why I say this because, for instance, um, L'Oreal spent a lot of money for one of their products to launch it to market. Uh, It was in market studies that they did with their venture arm and it was targeted for women over 50. And they went with with the name Perfect Age so as to have a good connotation and still resolve the problem of uh, skin care for aging uh, skin.
1: No, interesting points. I also think you know, depending on your strategy as far as therapeutics go, like often the, the reality is that you're going to be marketing it for the particular challenge it's facing. And so um, some of these questions about the exact you know, the exact language surrounding longevity or anti-aging and things like that, like you know, to actually build a business in this space, you're going to be attacking specific problems. And so I do think the community should be um, willing uh, to embrace things that may have a more targeted focus um, on a path to, you know, something that's more broad.
4: Thank you.
0: Okay, great. Um, Maybe we'll just get one last question. Thanks, Dan, for being so generous with your time. Aaron, uh welcome to the stage. Uh, what's your question? Hey, I'm sorry if, if this has been said before. I only came in at the tail end of the presentation, but how much analysis are you doing between castrated versus non-castrated um dogs in the the work that you're doing?
1: Interesting question. Um, you know, we get questions a lot about like breed specific. Um, I have been asked about the castration question as well, you know. Um, I think, you know, we've had dogs kind of across breeds and across, um, you know, being castrated or not, uh, we haven't seen anything. I, I won't say that we've like studied it specifically. Um, but you know, the pathways we're utilizing, I think are even, you know, aren't just, you know, like canine specific or species specific, but are more like large, large mammals, you know broadly large for large mammals. So I'm not as worried about those types of changes. But I do think when you're looking at papers on like, for instance, like longevity experiments in mice and things like that, I, um, these kind of female or male considerations and these types of considerations are important ones to look at. And so are things people should keep in mind. Um, I think they are ways that like people kind of gaming like lifespan increases at times. Um, but for the types of things we're claiming and going for, I don't think they're as relevant, but it is something we're keeping our eye
0: on. Okay, cool. Okay, awesome. Thanks for your question, Aaron. Okay, so uh, I guess we're past time and uh, I just wanna thank uh, Daniel again for being so generous with his time and coming onto the longevity biotech show today has been a great conversation, learned lots of information, lots of great you know, practical tools and and tips for for entrepreneurs in this space uh, in biotech and longevity uh, also yes amazing just hearing your your backstory you know coming from you know sort of like a non-traditional route but also you know making a huge impact in uh, longevity biotech so um yeah dan thanks thanks again for being on the show it's been great
1: enjoyed it um appreciate the time and uh wish everybody the best feel free to reach out
0: Okay, awesome. So uh, anybody who wants to reach out to Dan, uh, you can do so uh, I guess on LinkedIn would be the best way. And uh, yeah, thank you, Dan, and uh, have a great rest of the day, everyone.